0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right. All right. Check, check. Okay. Go, go ahead and move back to your seats. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. It's always a good Sunday when we have to pull chairs out, you know? It's great. Um, welcome, everybody, to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. And today we are wrapping up our series, Responding to the Invitation of God. We've been in this kind of super series since the beginning of the year. Um, it's October of last year. We asked the Lord for a vision for a community for, t- for 2019. And He said, Together with One Heart and Mind, Drawing Closer to God. And so we began to break that down. The first part of the year was uh, learning the heartbeat of God. What is God like? What are His desires? The second part of that was listening to the voice of God. How does God speak to us? And then how are each of us crafted uh, to, to listen to him? Kind of each of us have a natural way that we hear from God. And in each of us, there's maybe an invitation to step into a new way of hearing from him. And this kind of third piece is responding to the invitation of God in the sense of now that we know his heart, now we know that he's speaking, what do we do with that? Um, kind of redeeming the idea of obedience. You know, there's a lot of big words that we use kind of on the other side of that engagement with God, of the kind of lives that we're called to live. And so we're going to continue on today. We're going to finish up with everybody's favorite subject, morality. Okay. So um, we're going to take a moment. I want you to turn... Was that like wild and crazy, guys? Um, I want you to turn to one person that's next to you, if possible. So just pairs... Uh, maybe trios, and I want you to take a couple minutes and discuss these two questions: How do you define morality, and what are the guiding principles that you use to make moral decisions? Okay, let's just—we're just, just going to dive right in. We're going to get real uncomfortable. Pair up, come converse. about one more minute, so make sure everybody gets a chance to talk, it's the ethical thing to do. (laughs) that thought to a close good so how many of you are like morality yes I love morality how many of you are like no this is really uncomfortable right? This, it's, it's so fascinating, even our, you know, our conversation. We love talking about the Lord. We love talking about His heart. We love exploring, listening to Him. And then we're like, and then there's obedience and the way we're called to live. And you're like, ugh. we have that feeling. It's good to recognize that feeling. You know, even when we were talking in the series Listening to the Voice of God, we did a whole exercise that's about learning how rather than avoiding our feelings or giving ourselves over to them, taking them and kind of listening to them and saying, okay, Lord, here's this feeling that I'm having. What are you saying in this? What are you doing in this? And I think it's it's just a really good gauge for each one of us when we talk about morality or ethics or the, the standards by which we're called to live as Jesus followers, that we're listening to our own bodies. We're listening to our hearts. And that's going to help us to really work through some things with the Lord. Um, but why are we, generally speaking, why are we scared of, of speaking about morality? I asked several of our leaders this uh, this week, what, what's going on there? And, and there was some really interesting conversations. I think one a, a couple of leaders had said, you know, sometimes we're afraid to speak of morality because we're afraid other people are going to think that we're judgmental. Um, That we're being prescriptive in the way that we think other people should live, right? I mean, I think that's pretty valid. Um, For many of us, you know, specifically the conversation within church, perhaps we can almost imagine, um, Mark, one of our leaders was talking about, it's almost like a pendulum, you know, where there's such a call to live to a standard um, that it becomes very legalistic, right? Right? And there's no grace, and you have to follow all the rules. And here's the 95 theses in order for you to be a good Christian. And if you miss any of those, you've you've fallen somehow. And then the pendulum completely swings the other direction, and it's all grace and mercy without any kind of expectation of how we're supposed to live. And our hope is ultimately that we can live in both of those realities at the same time. And so what I want us to do this morning is explore the place of morality and ethics, and what that really means in a kingdom setting, that we need to transcend a lot of the stuff that we've been handed by our culture, maybe even by our church history, and really come back to Jesus and say, what does this look like to live the life that you're calling us to live as your church, your faithful witness, and how do we work that out day by day in the contemporary world? So I'm going to pray, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we're going to dive in. Um, so, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for everything you've been doing this year, Lord. You know, it's it's so uh, valuable for us uh, to approach you kind of on this platform of, of thanksgiving, because that changes dramatically what we ask of you next. So, Lord, would you remind each of us here what you've already done, what you've already spoken to us individually, uh, to us as a community, to remind us, oh yes, you are here and you are with us and you are for us and you're doing so much already. And so, Lord, when we ask for more, it's not out of a place of desperation, a fear of abandonment, but it comes out of a confidence that you've done it once and you'll do it again and you'll do it more. Um, And that's why we're here, Lord. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, we looked at this passage in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul is speaking about his specific calling in the context of what God is doing through the church. And he has this really beautiful Trinitarian prayer that he prays for this little church in Ephesus, that they would learn to find their callings. And we talked about calling as the intersection of your story, your personality, and your gifts, Um, but that we would learn how to to engage with God, that he would give us language more and more um, to really accept our calling. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that the passage, the next passage in Ephesians 4, Paul kind of does this change and he says, okay, so you've been rescued and redeemed. Now you're part of God's family, this new thing that God is doing in the world. And you've been given a calling that comes out of your personal experience of God and how he's equipped you. Now let's talk about what it looks like practically to live that out. So we're looking at Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 7. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received." Okay, so there it is, just even in that first sentence. You have a calling, your calling is not contingent upon whether or not you get it right, so that should automatically let you relax a little bit, okay? Because sometimes I think it's communicated, like if we don't do it, God's going to take away our calling, or He's going to take away the things that He's asking us to do because we didn't behave ourselves. Okay, Paul's saying, no, live a life that's worthy of the calling. So the calling gives you kind of a trajectory for where you're to go, who you're to become, what you're called to do. And he's saying, now, on the other side of that, start to live that out. I think it's kind of like in another passage in Philippians where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take what's true on the inside of you as an idea or a concept and start to practice, live it out. Allow it to affect the way you think the way you feel, the way you act, because it really becomes more about the process of growing into who God's calling us to be. And so what does it look like for us to live a life worthy of the calling? This is where he goes next. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord... One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Which I love. That's a great line. Do you realize, I was talking to several people about this this week. Do you realize that the revolution revolution of the church as the new humanity is that we're not judged and, and categorized according to some of those standard tropes of like your socioeconomic status, your race or ethnicity, your gender, so on and so forth. But you are actually categorized by the love that your belovedness, the love that God has for you and the specific gifts and calling he's placed on your life. That's how you arrange a society. And it's, it's been 2,000 years, and the church, we still haven't really understood how revolutionary that is, but I'm hoping that we're reclaiming that in some way. And so what we find here, live a life that is worthy of the calling you have received. I want to break that calling down into three parts, and we're going to talk through that. So number one, the calling is to follow King Jesus, which we've been talking a lot about in this series. Number two, the calling is to allow the Spirit To work in your life. We call this grace. That you are given grace by God to be who you've been called to be and to do what you've been called to do. And then thirdly, to acknowledge and then embody the spirit of unity that is a gift received from God, not a concept that's manufactured by people. Okay, you with me? All right, great. Let's do this. Okay, so number one. The first calling is to follow King Jesus, and this is where I specifically want to talk about the idea of morality. So morality isn't simply a list of do's and don'ts, and Lynn and I were talking about how awkward don'ts looks like on screen, you're like, do's and do nots, and then it's like a list of do's and donuts. Um, morality isn't simply a list of do's and don'ts, but a way to embody our faithfulness to King Jesus. You know, for me, that's one of the things that has been most striking, and even in this series, when we talked about faithfulness, faithfulness is not just a passive believing or even an acknowledgement, oh, yes, this is who Jesus is, and he's doing that thing over there, but it's actually this embodiment of, of everything that we are, kind of getting behind Jesus and his agenda, of, of allegiance to Jesus is a great way to think about faith, And so I think a lot of times we sell the idea of morality short when we just make it about behaving. Now, generally speaking in our culture, morality and ethics are interchangeable words, and I think that's okay, but we can also define it like this. Morality is your internal compass of how you as an individual make decisions, and ethics is a conversation about how a group of people have agreed uh, for best conduct, okay? So ethics, we're talking about society, culture, morality, we're talking about you as an individual, and I kind of want to walk both of those tracks simultaneously because I think what we're talking about at the core is the same thing. How do we live out this kind of life that we're called to live? But the problem that we have so often is that we take our eyes off the very high calling that this is about embodying faithfulness to King Jesus, and we make it about figuring out what's the right way to behave and what's the wrong way to behave. And before long, either we are receiving a list of do's and don'ts from our society, or we've created those things within ourselves. We've just sat down and said, here's all the best way to behave. Now, how many of you are in education professionally? Okay. Not Okay, hopefully this isn't too obtuse. That's your word of the day. Um, When I was in, you know, I have a degree in education and we talked about different educational theories. There was one called Behavioralism by B.F. Skinner. Now, if your name is B.F. Skinner, you don't sound like a trustworthy person anyway, but this was... uh, the, The idea of behavioralism as an educational theory um, goes way, way, way back uh, in, in culture, and, and indeed a lot of our educational system is still founded on behavioralism, which really means what you can almost imagine that it means. It means you change someone's behavior and you change the person, right? So education, the point is to get people to act good. Now in the 1950s, what that specifically meant was we want to create people that show up Uh, for eight hours a day and do a thing and then go home because we actually just want to produce good factory workers. That's our entire educational system. That was what it was based on, is remove any sense of individuality, transforming people, make productive workers that can go and work in the factory once they graduate. This is a very antiquated idea. There's a lot of new, uh, um, really fascinating ways of learning how people learn and making it more individual and actually creating certain kinds of people rather than producing workers, but that's still very prevalent in our society today. And I think that's also prevalent in a lot of the church, if we're honest. What we, in, what we invest in is a behaviorist faith, which means being faithful is about behaving yourself and doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And by the way, here's the list of right and wrong. And when you do everything right, then you get to belong. And if you do things wrong, then you're far away. Um, unfortunately, this is something we see uh, prevalent in our culture, but even in Peru, when I've engaged with um, with our church down there and talked to them about w- what's going on, we find that in Peruvian culture, it's it's a very graceless. Uh, religious culture that you might, you know, come to, uh, come to church on a Monday and you receive Jesus and then Tuesday something happens and you, you fall short. And so then when you come back on Wednesday, they tell you, well, you must not have been saved because obviously you sinned, so you need to, to get resaved. You need to come back and start all over again. And it keeps people in this vicious cycle of being controlled by their behavior because they're not moral people. And there's no grace in that. There's no genuine empowerment through the Holy Spirit. But when we're talking about morality and ethics, what we're talking about is this higher calling, is that we are to become the kind of person that is envisioned in Jesus, that Jesus is the fully human one, that part of Jesus's ministry was to to show us this is what it means to be a whole and complete and free person, that Jesus gives us a vision of what each of us are to become over time. And that's what we call becoming Christ-like. And many of you, again, one of those words that can be a little itchy when, in church because it hasn't necessarily been presented to us correctly is the word sanctification, sanctification. You're being made holy, which means behave better and better and better and and follow the rules more and more and more. But sanctification really means allowing the spirit to do work in you so that you look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday. But the imperative there is when we talk about morality and ethics and how we make decisions and what kind of society we're kind of creating, we need to transcend lists and make it more about fixing our eyes on Jesus first and foremost. And one of the places I think many of us see this today is especially in the political arena. And many of you are like, oh gosh, where are we going? We're going to talk about politics. Don't worry. I love to skewer both sides and show how we're all... Wrong and we've just missed the mark tremendously. But so often what we happen, we have these big ideas that are floating around in society today, and we, we try to assess the other side. And by the way, can we all just readily admit that we're being sold this false narrative that there's only two ways of seeing the world, and you're either conservative or liberal, and you have to buy the kit and you know, like wear the clothes and like everything's already laid out for you? It's insane. Because what that does is it prevents us from actually being thinking people. And especially for us as Christians, it removes our ability to think and engage with God, and we just start to swallow whatever we're being told about whatever the ethical issue is of the day. And you're being robbed of your capacity to engage with God and the conversation in the church. And we begin to let go of that, and we start to look at things honestly. It, it invites us to a whole new set of questions that we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But what we often find in these contemporary political discussions is these things have already been established and you're just kind of towing the line. And the the answers that come out of that are very uncreative answers. And for many of us, like, watch this. Just put your hand on your, your, your chest. And again, remember that thing I said about just, like, listening to your feelings? I'm just gonna say some words, and I just want you to listen to your feelings. Okay, ready? Abortion. Immigration. Impeachment. Right? How many of you are feeling that? like? <laughs> okay. So this is what we do. This is what we do as Christians. Close your eyes. Ready? Jesus. And do you feel it changes? You see? Because we've been conditioned that all of these different words and concepts, they've already come with this narrative that we're meant to just swallow up and then just react. And this is the answer and that's the answer. And We're supposed to do this and we're not supposed to do that. I had the privilege of engaging with another pastor in town this week. Um, we were, I was just hearing about his story, and he was talking about his his conversion. Many of you know my story. I grew up in church. I never knew a time without God, but he was very much, he had that moment. You know, we talked about with calling where it's like, I was like this, and then I was like that. He kind of got duped into going to a Bible study because he thought it was a dance class, which is great. Um, but he decided that he would keep coming back, and he he actually said to the leader, he's like, So I was just really high during that. Is it okay if I still come back? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can keep coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about morality and ethics, right? But he said as they started to engage with the Gospels, it was the person of Jesus that wooed him. Like, this is a totally revolutionary idea, y'all. What if Jesus is so attractive that people actually wanted to follow him, right? (laughs) Right? And how often do we forget that? We forget that it's about being just like transfixed by the person of Jesus and saying whoever he is, I wanna follow him wherever he goes and to live the kind of life that he's calling me to live instead of like walking through the door and being handed a list of behaviors. And I find so often in my life, I'm sure this is true for you, when I forget about him, when I don't fix my eyes on Jesus, that's the moment that I begin to fall. That where I make immoral decisions Don't worry, there's not many of them. I'm just kidding. (laughs) When I make immoral decisions, where I rationalize out my own behavior, or where I get when in kind of ethical conversations in our society, I get pulled into those partisan ways of thinking and feeling and doing. But when I fix my eyes on Jesus, I begin to transcend all of that. And we find Paul even talking about this in Colossians 2. It's a similar conversation about how we're supposed to live. So he's talking to them about these kind of extremes that were happening in the church that some people are so much rule followers that they want to run back to the synagogue way of doing things, and some people want to be so free of rules they were actually, like, running out into the desert and, like, hallucinating and having these crazy experiences of the Holy Spirit, but there was no, like, actual transformation on the other side of it. That's kind of the backstory. I don't know if that sounds familiar or not. Psych, that's exactly how church works today. (laughs) So this is the conversation Paul's having. He says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. What are the elemental spiritual forces of this world? Politics, economics, the ethical, moral standards that were being handed by our society. All these elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, right? The more that we follow the rules, the more they lose their fervor are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. Look at me. Look how I'm behaving and I'm following and our team is the right team and surely God is on our side because we've got it all figured out. Their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And a lot of times maybe you've you've read that passage just right there and you stop and you're like Oh, thank God, I don't have to follow the rules anymore, right? Like, all it, is, all it is is about following rules and measuring up and trying to be perfect, and we don't continue on because we just read that and go, Oh, good, God's setting us free of having expectations of how we're supposed to live. And that's not exactly true. He goes on and he says this, Since then, you have been raised with Christ, past tense, okay? Your moral and ethical standard are not reflective of the fact that you have been raised with Christ, Okay? So live into that a little bit. It's not, your salvation is not something that you earn, okay? It's not something that you have decided that you're going to agree into. It is something that has been offered to you. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So he's saying, we get it's so easy because we see it in front of us and it's tangible and it's written down. Do this, don't do that. And he's saying, leave all of that behind. You've been saved from that. But you actually get to transcend to this higher calling of living into Christ where salvation is a gift, your new identity is a gift, and you get to work out what it means to be a follower of Jesus from that position, not just these lowly left-right divides that we've been handed by our own society. So, for example, look at this. How many of you, if you're willing to admit, are conformers? You love rules. You love boundaries. You're like, just show me what to do, tell me what to do, give me the deadlines, and I'm there, okay? There's six of you, okay. (laughs) That's fine. Y'all see me afterwards, I've got some things for you to take care of. Just kidding. How many of you, you're rebels. As soon as you feel the definition or the boundaries, you're like, No! Get it out of here! I'm free in Christ, right? And, and, and typically, we, we, that's how we struggle when we talk about morality and ethics. We think, oh yes, tell me how to behave, give me the rules. Some of us actually really like that. And some of us are like, no, there can't be any kind of definitions on me. I have to be free. And that is so, such a shortcoming. It's such a small way for us to think, either of those. Because faithfulness to Jesus transcends that false divide of conformity or rebellion. Okay? It transcends all of that. And maybe faithfulness to Jesus looks like the most conventional, normal thing, and it's, it, you know, whatever. And maybe it looks like the most bizarre, weird thing. But that's not for you to decide. Other people can judge your faithfulness to Jesus. That's on them to m- try to measure what you're doing by their own ethical or moral standards. But when we pursue faithfulness in Jesus, we're transcending all of those expectations of don't taste and don't touch and do this and don't do that. And that kind of brings us to the second point. So the first is about following King Jesus. The second part of our calling is to be equipped with grace for the work that we've been given to do. How do we define grace? Grace is the hand of God placed upon you to empower you to do the things that you cannot do by your own merit that you're invested with God's spirit, that he lives within you and he's doing something that even now you might not necessarily recognize, but it's transforming you over time to become more like Jesus. And I think this is what's so key, kind of thinking about that idea of like conformity or rebellion or kind of the options that were handed, that the spirit empowers us to be truly free, becoming the kind of people God created us to be. The Spirit is empowering us to become truly free. Because unfortunately what has happened when we've fallen into those divides and those expectations and those standards is freedom generally means, especially within our own society, freedom means there is a lack of constraint, right? When we have 16 options for what kind of bleach we can buy, we think that we're free, Ha, 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 right? That's what we think freedom is. So anytime someone has an expectation of us, we feel like we are less free than we were before. But as the, the, the miserable cigarette-smoking French existentialist told us, free, that kind of freedom is an illusion because you're always enslaved to something, right? Even if you could throw off all the expectations of family and society and you know, uh, culture and religion, like you're still enslaved to your own desires. How many of you have to eat in order to survive? Does that mean that you're less free? You see, we've bought into this illusory idea of what freedom really means. And we want it to say, my options are open. And we find this a lot of times in our society. We talk about being self-made people or self-determination. We say that that's a sacred right. I get to decide who I am, and that's the reflection of freedom. So if anybody has expectations of me, they are trying to make me less of a free person. In more contemporary language, we say, I'm going to do me. Okay? You do you. What does that mean? What, what me are you talking about? What you are you talking about? And you see, we so internalize that thing. I get to decide who I am. That is my right as an, insert whatever, cultural marker you have here. But that kind of freedom is an illusion and it's not what we're actually called to. And unfortunately, when we read the word freedom in scripture, that's so often what we're thinking of. And I think this is a really helpful demonstration, like uh, illustration, to to what we're really talking about. We talk about freedom within the kingdom. So, uh, Nicky Gumbel is uh, a pastor and writer in England, and he had this really beautiful analogy. He said, uh, one day he's getting ready to take his six-year-old son to soccer practice in the UK. It's called football, and the coach calls him up and says. Uh, Nikki, I'm, I'm going to be late. Can you get there and can you run practice until I get there and then we'll get things sorted out? And he said, sure. Now, Nikki Gumbel doesn't know anything about soccer, a.k.a. football. So he gets there. He's got, you know, 20-odd six-year-olds kind of running around. And so he just kind of looks around and he goes, okay. And he just kind of throws the ball and he's like, okay, go get it. You're free. Do whatever you want. And guess what? They were miserable. And I wish I had remembered to look for this photo. I have a photo. My brother and I ended up on the same soccer team. And you know how like little kids, when they play soccer, it's like a flying V of children? You know, like there's no real like rules. There's a picture. And I was one of the bigger kids, believe it or not. And I was like kind of up front. And you see way in the distance, my brother like this. (laughs) Because my brother wanted to be a dancer, uh, which eventually he, he got to do in middle school. But anyway, I regress. Um, So these kids, you know, Nicky Gumbel's kind of running this practice, and he's like, just, okay, just do it. And they're, it's miserable. They're running into each other, and they're crying, and they're complaining. Nobody knows what's going on. And eventually the coach gets there, and he blows a whistle. He calls the little boys over. He divides them into two teams. He establishes the boundaries of the pitch and where the goals are, and he gives them assignment. And then he actually starts refereeing a game. And guess what? Everybody's having a blast. Everybody's having fun. Because someone came in to give order to chaos so they could do what they were there to do. And I think that's one of the best demonstrations I've ever heard of what real kingdom freedom is. That when it's our right to self-determination, that we get to do what we want to do and we get to be who we want to be, it's chaos and it's miserable and nobody's having any fun. And when God comes and actually invites us to a new way of living, he's giving us the boundaries, he's giving us the, 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 the expectations, and yes, even perhaps the rules on how to live, but living into who we're actually crafted to be at the cellular level, what it means to be a human being. God's saying, I'm going to bring you back to that, my original intentions for who you are. And so then, when we come back to what Paul is saying in Ephesians, and he says, here, live into the calling. And what are the examples of that? What are the the parameters? What are the rules? What are the things you and I created to do naturally? To be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. These are the kind of qualities, when we see them in mature Jesus followers, we don't question whether or not they are good things. We don't even look and say, well, should I have the freedom to be gentle or not? Now, unfortunately, some of us do when we're really immature, right? We think, well, I I just don't feel like being gentle today, and I'm free to do that. But when we see true, grown, mature Jesus followers, we do not question if gentleness and patience and indeed love are qualities, whether or not we should choose them. We say we wish there were more people like that in this world, and so we have to believe that the definitions and the boundaries upon which God is calling us to actually make us more free, make us more human beings than less. And I think then when we begin to talk about ethics, it changes our interaction with what we see and happening in culture. That our job as Christians is not to legislate the kingdom, okay? But it's about becoming the embodiment of what it, this is what it looks like when God is king. This is what it looks like when human beings begin to live into that that spiritual DNA of what it means to be a human being. And I think that really helps us to understand our role when we're responding to the invitation of God to be the embodiment of His people and what He's doing in the world, then this is what happens. Don't look for shortcuts to fixing the world. Be the demonstration of the world already rescued and redeemed. One of the phrases we use so often in Christianity for this is to be in the world, but not of the world, which isn't technically in the Bible, but there's a lot of different verses that kind of point to references of that. We can so often settle for this illusion that our job is to conquer culture. If we could legislate Christianity, if we could force everybody else to behave and do things the way that we do them and see things the way that we have, somehow we've advanced the kingdom in our day and time. And that happens personally. We do that to our friends and our family. We try to get them to play along with the rules of being a Christian, whether or not they know Jesus. And we try to do that culturally when it comes to our society. And again, you know, I love cutting the legs out from left and right alike. Like nobody is exempt from this. Nobody's exempt from this. Generally speaking, these are big generalities and I only have 30 minutes to talk about such things, but generally speaking, this is what we find the uncreative solutions of kingdom people to trying to influence culture is trying to conquer it and we call this dominionism. Very simple terms, you would see that maybe uh, on the conservative side, we're trying to legislate abortion in order to get people to behave to our expectations. On the liberal side, you would tend to see it in immigration that if we can just, you know, kind of legislate a standard of immigration, then we're basically doing the same thing as bringing the kingdom. And what happens, so unfortunately, when we think about that, we're trying these shortcuts of fixing the world because what happens there is that we end up trying to have the state do what the church is supposed to do and to have the country be what the church is supposed to be. Now, I think we're very blessed to live in a democratic society where we actually get to have a voice and to contribute to the larger conversations in our society. And more Christians should be doing that, but we need to be doing it from a position of being kingdom people and being the embodiment of what it means to be rescued and redeemed and given a new identity. It is not a replacement to the work of being the church to just try to legislate the kingdom in advance. We call this dominionism and it has never worked because as as soon as we outsource the call to be the church to the the government, before long we find that Jesus gets edged out for the sake of, of other gods, consumerist gods, authoritarian gods. All these different things start to replace Jesus when we try to do that. And so the real beautiful challenge, I think, today for for us as believers in a democratic society is to say, first and foremost, what does it look like for me and for us to be faithful to embodying the character of God? And then secondly, to participate in conversations in our society where we're not trying to legislate our do's and don'ts, but we're actually giving people an experience of the God as revealed in Jesus and maybe seeing if that changes the narrative of what's happening in our society, whether it's our local culture or on the national level. And I think then we recognize our series itself has really been a trajectory for learning how to make moral decisions as Christians. Do you realize that every belief that you have about whatever's going on in society, and mentioned all these things beforehand, abortion, immigration, you know, all these different conversations, whatever you, your opinion is, you are saying something about what God is like. Now, you don't always recognize that. And that's the challenge of being a Christian, is to say, can I connect what I believe about this issue with what I'm saying about what God is like if I am truly the embodiment of his son Jesus. So number one, what is God like? What are God's intentions and desires for the human family? What are his intentions and desires for me if I'm talking about making more personal moral decisions? Like what kind of person does he want me to become? And then to say before I have an opinion, and I love Richard Rohr says opinions are just undeveloped thinking, To come to God and say, "Okay, God, here's this thing that's happening in culture, or I read it about in the news or on social media. I'm getting all fired up. I'm having these emotional reactions. I can feel my heart beating fast. Go, what are you saying about this? How many of us just pause and ask Him that, God? What are you? What are you saying about immigration? What are you saying about abortion?" what are you saying about the, 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 you know, the election next year, whatever it is? Like, speak to me about what, you're speak, what your, your vantage point from heaven is, because I have a very small vantage point right now. And I bet you a lot of times what you're going to find is God isn't going to give you legislation or behavior. He's actually going to speak to you about kindness and gentleness and patience and love, the kind of qualities of the person that you are becoming. And then we begin to ask, well, what is the task of the church as the world already redeemed? As the world that says, this is what it looks like when God is king. Now, my job isn't to make the society look like the kingdom. My, my job is to actually embody it, to be the shining light, you know, to be the city on a hill that says, this is what it looks like when we follow King Jesus. What is the church's role to live into that? And then finally, what is my personal responsibility to come into agreement with the purpose that the church has? And how do I start to engage? I guarantee if you can follow that kind of thinking about the character of God, how God is leading us, and then what our response is, you're gonna have some amazing discussions and you're gonna find yourself engaging with all of these different ideas in our society, all these different moral conundrums that you might have, and you're gonna come at them from a dramatically different place because you're not following rules. You're not fighting against expectations. You're saying, what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus? How many of you are just, you're just tired. You're just tired of all the yeses and the noes and the don't touch this and do touch that And you're like, I want something more. You know, I want something more. Like, all my punk rock days are behind me. I'm over it. I don't want to rebel against the system anymore. Huh? Punk's not dead. blink 182 just put out a new album. Punk's not dead. I want to live for something. I want to live for Jesus. I want every part of who I am gathered up behind him and transformed to become more and more in his likeness. So when I step out into the world as an ambassador of the kingdom, I am the shining light. I I want us to be that kind of little world that people look at and say, what's happening there? Because guess what? Everybody else in your life is tired. Everybody else is exhausted right now in our society. And you and I, we actually have the streams of living water, but we have to see that first and foremost as our source. And that brings us to the last piece, embodying unity. That we embody and experience unity. As Paul speaks about it here, we have one Lord, aka King, we have one faith, we have one baptism at the holy table. Sometimes we call it communion, sometimes we call it Eucharist. And this is the beauty of of coming to the table together. All of our different tribes, all of our different moral perspectives, the fact that so many of us disagree on so many different ethical issues or moral issues, whatever that is, when we come to the table together, all of those things are submitted to Jesus. We lay all of those things down. And I think, like I said, that is the most powerful demonstration of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus. When Paul says elsewhere, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for we are all one under Christ Jesus. All of those opinions, all that underdeveloped thinking that we have, we lay it down and we come to to sup together at his table. And the more that we do that, the more we are embodying and living into that higher calling, that we transcend all that stuff to say it's about following Jesus and trusting that who he's calling us to be as human beings is far more beautiful than any of the narratives that we're internalizing from the society around us. And the beauty is that unity is a gift that you and I have received from God. This is what Paul's saying. Unity is a gift. It's not something that we have to decide we agree with. It's not something that we have to manufacture. Well, try really hard, and then maybe you guys can be unified. No, no, no. We are unified. Because it's not about what we do. It's about that we have received this from Jesus. And we get to embody and we live into that unity. We cannot earn it. We cannot manufacture it. But we can give ourselves over to it. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to prepare to come to the holy table the word Eucharist means a gift that we have received that begins to tell us a dramatically different story about who we think that we are And so we're gonna pray together. And I love that, I love that in this prayer, it's almost like we're telling God the story that He's telling us, right? It's this beautiful exchange back and forth. And even the act, I think, of, of doing liturgical prayer is us submitting ourselves to these bigger truths, of letting letting ourselves believe when we're guided, we actually find ourselves more free. So let's pray together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God, it is right to give him of God of all power, ruler of the universe, you are worthy of glory and praise. Glory to you forever and ever. At your command, all things came to be, the vast expanse of interstellar space, galaxies, suns, the planets in their courses, and this fragile earth, our island home. the primal elements, you brought forth the human race and blessed us with memory, reason, and skill. You made us the rulers of creation, but we turned against you and betrayed your trust, and we turned against one another. Again and again, you called us to return through prophets and sages. You revealed your righteous law, and in the fullness of time, you sent your only Son, born of a woman, to fulfill your law, to open for us the way of freedom and peace. Blood us. wounds we are healed. And therefore we praise you, joining with the heavenly chorus, with prophets, apostles, and martyrs, and with all those in every generation who have looked to you in hope to proclaim with them your glory in their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, Father, we who have been redeemed by him and made a new people by water and the Spirit now bring before you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be the body and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, said the blessing broke the bread and gave it to his friends and said, "'Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. "'Do this for the remembrance of me.'" After supper, he took the cup of wine, gave thanks, and said, "'Drink this, all of you. "'This is my blood of the new covenant, "'which is shed for you and for many "'for the forgiveness of sins. "'Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me.'" Remembering now his work of redemption and offering to you this sacrifice of thanksgiving, we celebrate his death and resurrection as we await the day of his coming. Lord God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, open our eyes to see your hand at work in the world about us. Deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal, Let the grace of this Holy Communion make us one body, one Spirit in Christ, that we may worthily serve the world in His name. Accept these prayers and praises, Father, through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, to whom, with you and the Holy Spirit, your church gives honor, glory, and worship from generation to generation. And all God's people said together, Amen. So I want to invite you to come to the table. We'll start in the front rows and we'll move our way back. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at citybeautifulch. We hope you join us again soon.